from the stage and walk towards the heckler to continue the debate. There you are, I said to my mate. If the mountain bike won't go to Mohammed. If a son of mine had played football for England, I don't think I could have been more proud. My mate actually applauded. This is why I became a comedian. And yes, these two stories show why I loved that mate more than I ever could have loved that stunningly attractive woman. I didn't begin my comedy career until I was 30. People have been telling me I should be a comic since I was about six, but in a way, I already was a comic. I used to perform in the classroom, then in the pub, the factory, and now on telly. It's all the same thing, showing off and endlessly pursuing that holy grail, the laugh. You don't need a microphone or a camera, all you need is an audience. Mates, girlfriends, people on bosses, anyone will do. It's like an addiction. Just after my dad died, me and my two brothers had the task of clearing out his house. All his clothes and little trinkets, a lock of my mum's hair, his rosary beads, photographs, the lot. We were being brave about it, but it was a desperately sad process. All three of us frightened we might find the thing that would, without much warning, leave us broken and sobbing. My eldest brother, Terry, was clearing out a cupboard and took out the remains of a cheap ornament that my dad had an affection for. Originally it was a bird perched on a branch, but it had got broken and the piece that Terry held up consisted of only the base, a branch, and a pair of bird's feet still clinging on. No doubt somewhere deep in the cupboard was the footless bird, both pieces put there by my dad with the intention of mending them one day. One of the thousands of loose ends left behind when somebody dies suddenly. I took the broken ornament from my brother, the little feet severed just above the ankle, if birds have ankles. He looked at me, but didn't speak. Neither did my other brother, Keith. They looked, but they didn't speak. I did. Lot 16. Who killed Cot Robin, I said. We laughed like we used to when we were kids sharing the same bedroom. Those of you not familiar with the old song, Who Killed Cot Robin, will just have to trust me on this one. Anyway... Though I feel I've always been a comic, I didn't actually make my stage debut till I was 30. So after putting it off for so long, what gave me the kick up the arse that finally made me do it? It suddenly occurred to me one day that it would be a terrible thing to be a 70-year-old man and wonder if I could have made it as a comic. To have tried and failed would be bearable, but to have not tried. To lie there pondering what it would have been like and to know that the chance had gone forever. Horrible. After having these thoughts, I had no choice but to give it a go. Ever since that day, I do a lot of my decision-making with the help of the looking-back-when-I'm-seventy test. This has led me to doing my first West End play, taking part in a completely improvised live TV series, and to contracting a venereal disease from a woman I met in a nightclub in Moseley in the late 1980s. Here goes with a bit of autobiographical information. I was born Christopher Graham Collins on the 28th of January 1957 at 5.15 in the afternoon. My mother, Doris Elizabeth Collins, a slight dark-eyed teetotaler from nearby Oldbury, gave birth to me in what was then called Hallam Hospital in West Bromwich, Staffordshire, about five miles northwest of Birmingham. My birth certificate says I was born in the town of West Bromwich, in the area of West Bromwich, in the county borough of West Bromwich. So when people ask me why I support West Bromwich Albion Football Club, I explain that my decision was based on the only criterion anyone should ever use when choosing a football club. Geography. You sit with a pencil, a ruler and a map. 
identify the nearest professional club to your place of birth, you buy a scarf with their name on it, and that's that. My dad was John Francis Collins, a heavy-drinking, sports-mad amateur pop singer with a big chest and a bald head who came from West Cornforth, County Durham. My dad always told me that he came down to West Bromwich to play for the non-leaguers Spennymore United in the third round of the FA Cup in 1937 when he was 19. I'm not sure he actually made the final 11 that day, but West Brom managed to win 7-1. That night, my dad and some of the other Spennymore boys sought out a local pub and got invited to a party by a bunch of Oldbury lads. My dad-to-be decided that these boys were a bit dodgy, so decided to give them a false name. Len. At the party, he saw this pretty dark-eyed girl and asked one of the Albury boys if he knew her. Yeah, it's my sister, he said. I'll introduce you. And my mum called my dad Len till her dying day. Of course, the upshot of this story is, if it wasn't for West Bromwich Albion, I would never have been born. When my dad approached that 18-year-old girl at that Saturday night party, he couldn't possibly have known the effect his appearance would have had on her. A few years earlier, as my mum maintained to her death, she had had a dream. She was in her bedroom when she heard heavenly music and opened the windows to hear more clearly. As the sun streamed in, she began to make out a group of angels in the distant sky. They seemed to be carrying a young man. As they got nearer, she could clearly see the man's face. It was no one she knew, no one she'd ever met. Well, not until a slightly drunk amateur footballer said hello to her at a party a few years later. Shortly after they married, my mum sent this story into a newspaper and won two shillings for the letter of the week. Who'd have thought that 60-odd years later a little boy would still be milking the same story for financial reward? My first memory is... Actually, one thing that particularly pisses me off about autobiographies is the my first memory bit, so I'll keep it brief. My first memory was of me sitting on the edge of my bed saying, well, I'm four today. Now, unusually for a first memory, the nature of the utterance makes this one fairly easy to put a date on. All the evidence points to it being the 28th of January 1961, unless, of course, it wasn't my birthday at all, and I was saying it as a gag, just to throw my parents. My sister's husband, Frank, tells a story of me as a little kid. He was invited to my mum and dad's house by my sister, Nora, so that he could go through one of those nerve-wracking meet-the-girlfriend's-parents experiences that all boyfriends must eventually face. He turned up at our little council house in Albury, drank tea and was quizzed by my parents, chiefly my old man. Then I appeared, aged about four or five, wearing a full cowboy outfit and carrying a small plastic guitar. Six Elvis songs later, my future brother-in-law was starting to get a little bored. I couldn't play the guitar, and it wasn't tuned, and it wasn't what you'd really call a guitar. My brother Keith had a really nice acoustic guitar with a little photo of Elvis in a sort of circular picture frame on the front, but I wasn't allowed to touch this. Also, my voice was a little kid's voice, you know, too high and with a big audible breath between each line. Apparently, my old Shep, an Elvis song that tells the tale of a dying dog, was particularly mournful. And worse still, if anyone spoke or even looked away mid-song, I cut them down with a look that would stop a charging elephant. Eventually, I allowed a short interval. My brother-in-law moved on to that safest of working-class male subjects, football. Football 
was, at that time, an almost exclusively working-class male thing. The terraces, when I was a kid, were all about bad language, the smell of woodbine cigarettes, a blind passion for your team, and for football in general, in that order. I remember a bloke standing next to me calling one of our defenders a lazy fucker at fairly high volume. Another chap just in front of us turned and asked him to curtail his language because he had his young son with him. The swearing man said, Look, mate, I work in a fucking factory five days a fucking week having to bite me fucking tongue all the fucking time in case I say too fucking much and get myself into fucking trouble. I come here to watch me fucking team and be myself and say whatever I fucking like, so fuck off. I only remember this speech so well because I've been quoting it ever since, originally because, like most 11-year-olds, I thought swearing was really funny. But in more recent times, because I think it says more about what football means to real football fans than any beautifully written hardback with a weeping gazer on the cover. The father of the small child didn't look frightened or insulted. He just nodded as if he understood and carried on watching the game. So, anyway... My brother-in-law pointed at me, sitting in my cowboy suit, guitar at my side, easing my thirst with a dandelion and bird up before I bounced back for another three or four numbers. Is he going to be a footballer, he asked. Now, said the old man. He slapped the top of our ten-inch black and white telly. He's going to be on this. So, piss buckets in the bedroom. Shortly before he became Prime Minister, I interviewed Tony Blair on my chat show, we were discussing working classness, and I explained my theory that, of course, when it came to criteria for identifying someone as working class, profession, accent, education and leisure interests were all important. But the best rule of thumb definition...